the funny thing about rocket science is that nothing else is rocket science. <laughs> you, know, you know, they say it's not rocket science. Well, nothing is except for rocket science. And if you're not doing rocket science, use logic. This is my conversation with Jennifer Norman. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't. And we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Repun. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. And it's the human the beauty movement. Human beauty yeah. movement. Okay. All right. I got it. Okay. A lot of people say human booty movement. Human <laughs> booty movement. Thing. Yeah. Human booty movement <laughs> or- is more of a descriptor than a company. <laughs> um, That's right. That's my right. guest today is Jennifer Norman of the human booty, human booty movement. Uh, <laughs> I told you. I, it's human beauty movement, but so many people say human booty movement that I think I would be remiss if I didn't if I didn't say human booty movement. And we're gonna cover so many things today that I think probably human booty movement comes in there at some place. Maybe the dating after 50 part, maybe the, yeah. uh, maybe the part of, uh, maybe the part of uh, a law of attraction, the <laughs> part where we talk about possibly not, well, yeah, it will. It'll come into effect when we talk about family and, uh, mm-hmm. and adoption and raising kids with various needs and how that all comes together. So I think that that actually was probably a very apt way to bring you in. But uh, all of that said, I would say that there's a through line of positivity and of kind of resigning to the fact that life's going to throw some shit at us and, uh, and that we're going to have to handle it as best we can. So Jen, welcome to the show. Hirsch, you're amazing. Thank you so much for having me today. <laughs> my pleasure. It's my pleasure. So tell us your story, and we'll hit all these notes as we go through your story, so I may stop you to focus on something, but, uh, but it's, it's a fascinating story, so just, just go for it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my name is Jen Norman. I was really the the product of a whole lot of compassion. And it was one of those things where I think when you are born or before you're born, God tells you, okay, you've got a contract to come into this world and uh, we're gonna we're gonna challenge you with a whole bunch of contrast. We're gonna see what you can make of it. We're gonna see if you can sink or swim. And I recognize that there's a whole lot of sinking going on right now. And what I am here to do and why I wanted to come on to this podcast is say, you know, I, I was I was pretty much drowning, you know, for quite a lot of my life, but I learned how to swim. And I um, and I thought it'd be it'd be good to share my story. And so interestingly enough, when I was first born and, and shortly after that, I was born in South Korea and I was abandoned. I was left on the steps of a government building and um, there was pretty much no note, no information. Um, And some people found me and tried to take me in. Apparently I cried a whole heck of a lot. I must've been a colicky baby, so they couldn't stand it. I don't blame you. I don't blame you being left on a doorstep with a note you can't even read. No note. Yeah. Uh, no, no. And, and so I was brought to an adoption um, facility called Holt um, in, in Chechon Village. And back then, it was, it was a lot different. The whole adoption process was different. It was very quick. Um, and so uh, a wonderful family from New York found me. And, um, you know, before I was, you know, around two years old, uh, two and a half years old, uh, I made my way into this amazing Caucasian family on Long Island that had uh, three children of their own. They adopted me. And then shortly after that, they decided to adopt two other children from Vietnam. And so we were a mixed bag of nuts growing up. But the interesting thing was that um, 
even though I was surrounded by, you know, these, these wonderful people, you, you still feel a little bit weird, you know? You, you feel like they're saying, you know, you, you, we're, we're going to turn you into an American, speak English. You know, there was really no cultural appreciation for where I came from. It was all, you know, kind of Wonder Bread and Jif um, and Skippy from, from, from then on. And so, you know, I grew up not really understanding my own innate identity. I kind of would feel these feelings and have these emotions and was like trying to figure myself out and why I was so different from even my brother and sister who were um, blood related from Vietnam. Um, Even they had their own thing together. And I just kind of felt like this strange outsider for a lot of my life. Like I just didn't fit in anywhere. Well, it makes a a big uh, difference to have a sibling your mm-hmm. siblings who had each other and could look exactly. at each other as they were growing up and say, oh, okay, we, we come from somewhere. So, yes. you know, yes. they, they're feeling the same thing. And here you are being brought into a, an environment and a, and a culture that may have a, a tremendous amount to offer you, but doesn't answer a lot of questions. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, um, Luckily enough, I mean, I, I was blessed with these these amazing parents who were just, um, you know, really um, very much into kids, very much into animals. We had like six cats and three dogs. And so it was just a whole lot of energy and a whole lot of craziness when I was growing up. But I realized that, you know, after a while, because I started getting like insecure with myself and really just felt almost like this um, this introverted type of a person, I started like becoming, I think my innate DNA of being like the tiger mom or the, t- the tiger person started to come out. So I was like, became super competitive. So I went into like every, you know, every club I did gymnastics and dance and piano and art. And like, I just like threw myself into all sorts of like creative outlets to try to figure out like how I could express myself. And I think a lot of artists do that, that, you know, are really just like trying to like battle with their own emotions. Were your parents encouraging you in one direction or another? Well, I think that to a certain degree, they um, encouraged me by, you know, letting me do my thing until it got to the place where it became obsessive. And there would be times where I would be painting like throughout the night or I, and then it became like, okay, there's something wrong with her. There's like, (laughs) we we need to scale her back. Where is this coming from? It it almost got to be like, you know, a a real thing where I I was striving for so much perfection and, and, and so much, um, of just like, I can't get it wrong. I have to get an A. I have, and so there, you know, there definitely was this pressure that I was putting on myself that came from nowhere else but myself which was interesting. Yeah. What age was it? What age was this where you were doing all the activities and taking all the lessons? Yeah. Young teens into my teenage years, I would say. Um, Funnily enough, like my, my family was Roman Catholic. And so my mom was catechism teacher. She taught communion and all of that. But then um, my sister, who was Vietnamese, was having a bit of a learning difficulty. She was adopted when she was six years old. And so she was thrown right into the first grade. It was really, really hard for her. Uh, And so my mom found this private school that um, she started to thrive in and decided to put my brother um, and and me into it as well. And it turned out to be a Protestant Christian school, you know, born again, um, slain in the spirit, like all, all of that. And so... Boy, was that confusing too to see the, like the difference in uh, like just religious infighting between Protestant and and I, I mean I lived it like you know mentally and emotionally. Here we were in like the seventh grade, having teachers tell us that the Pope is leading a cult and he's going to hell. And <laughs> well, religion is supposed to answer all the questions, right? Every religion professes that it. Well, they don't all profess to have all the answers, but they have their right. You know, they're certainly right. There's no religion that I know of, a major religion, that says, you know, we might be wrong. It might be the other religion. Maybe it's the other, maybe it's the other take on God. Mm-hmm. But here's our thing. Our thing is this. It's always, this is the, we know the truth. Somehow we mm-hmm. got the, we got the memo. The other faith didn't get the memo or, you know. And so now you have, now you're put in a position where you, you have competing 
competing uh, uh, philosophies. Competing beliefs, yeah. yeah. It's just like, and and it's and, and all in the name of, of Christianity. It's like, hey, we all believe in Jesus here. Like, you know, aren't we <laughs> supposed to love thy neighbor? I don't see that much happening even to today, you know. <laughs> sure. But, um, yeah, so, so that was really... Um, just a, a bizarre time in my life um, where it was like led with, you know, ultimate confusion, uh, you know, aside from not really feeling like I knew who or myself, then I feel like I'm going to hell because I've got this, um, you know, uh, Roman Catholic guilt. And then I also have, you know, th- these, um, you know, these fanatics on the, the Protestant side that are telling me I'm going to hell because, you know, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, impure thoughts or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it, it was just a, you know, a, an upbringing that was rooted in a whole lot of shame and a whole lot of um, like praying for discipline and feeling like, you know, just really shutting myself in. And, and I, it, it was almost like just, you know, you feel like you're almost in a straitjacket for, a, a, you know, a period of time and just like longing to try to figure out who the heck you are. And I think a lot of teens go through this kind of oppression unto themselves, but I feel like it was a little bit compounded just uh, by not really being able to look around my family and see anybody that looked like me or anybody in my, you know, neighborhood that even, you know, just identified with me. And I frankly, um, for a lot of my life, I grew up feeling like I was really ugly. Like I really just like everything about me, it was just like this kind of self-loathing and self-hatred because, you know, it's the time of supermodels and magazines and you you just don't see anybody that looks like you and you really feel like, you know, not only are you strange on the inside, you're strange on the outside. And so, you know... Were were there external uh, judgments as well? Like, so far you're you're saying a lot about how you felt, but but what were the... How were you treated? Yeah, you know... As far as like if we're talking about racism or things like that, it was one of those things where early on, you know, when kids are immature, then there's a whole lot of teasing, as as you can imagine, with, you know, kids that just don't look like you. And so there was that bit of like bullying and teasing and that feeling like, you know, it probably launched that that seed of doubt and insecurity about my looks and, and, and whatnot going on through life. Um, And I will say that after that, it wasn't until I found the power of sexuality, like when I was when I became a teen and started to blossom and then, you know, just started to become a little bit more promiscuous, hence the booty part. <laughs> I think that that's when I was like, oh, now I get it. Now I know how to, you know, how I can I can, you know, get a sense of control. And perhaps a lot of women do that, too, is like they they all of a sudden realize what kind of power that they have over over men or over whomever they went, you know, wish to because they, they're, they're longing for this kind of attention. And it's really kind of this emotional insecurity and this, this hole in their inside themselves that they're trying to fill. And then they start filling it with things that are more externally validating than necessarily internally validating. And so I right. went through a whole phase, man, whole phase of that, of just like trying to like, you know, go after the attention, go after the boys, go after the, the fashion. And, the, and I actually launched a 20-year career in the beauty industry, ironically enough. Um, and I think it was because, to me, that was almost like a sense of accomplishment, a sense of satisfaction that, yeah, I can actually work in this industry and dictate what beauty is to other people. I think that um, makes perfect sense. Did you? Did you... But you didn't recognize it at the time, you're saying. At the time that you went into beauty, you just were responding to wanting to fill that, to conquer that. Yeah, yeah. To me, uh, you know, I thought it was probably my greatest accomplishment. But, you know, at the same time, I was... um, uh, bulimic. I was literally, you know, I would look at myself, I would feel fat. And here I was, you know, five to 103 pounds, which is not, which, which is pretty normal, if not, you know, pretty slender. 
And I, I still felt tremendously fat. Like, like I just felt disgusting. And I was a dancer. I did gymnastics. I was, you know, very athletic in, in many respects throughout my, my youth. And, um, and I still just felt like, like this body dysmorphia. Now, a lot of it was because of what media does to you in parading around like super, super skinny girls that are like size zeros, 5'10", you know, 80, like 90 pounds. It was the time of Kate Moss. It was the time of like, just like real, um, like heroin chic, and so, you know, that was the that was the North Star that unfortunately a lot of girls were holding themselves up to. And uh, and, you know, that went on for years and it was just expected. It was, you know, the dictate of a, a lot of media and, you know, what we see on TV. Um, it wasn't a whole heck of a lot of diversity, let alone diverse bodies. And so it was just fascinating to see the shift that has been happening over the course of time once we did start getting to more of the the democratic aspect and the more user-generated content that is, you know, bubbling up that has really shifted the clout in uh, in what is beautiful today. It's ironic that that the shift that you described is is real and is happening and it's happening in in advertising and it's happening, you know, maybe not soon enough, but it's happening at the same time, politically, everything's mm-hmm. now taking, uh, you know, <laughs> people say 50 years back, it feels like it's like it's 200 years, like it's 250 years back. How are you processing that dichotomy uh, between what's what's been happening socially and what's happening politically? Yeah, you know, to me, it's very fascinating, and it shows that, number one, and and perhaps because I brought up the whole aspect of Christianity and this kind of old-school, older paradigm of thinking, where my mother was such a zealot. I mean, she would go to the Capitol every single year and march for pro-life rallies. This was my mom. And I remember early on, um, you know, when I became a a teen adult, I broke it to her because I didn't want to hurt her feelings. But it, it, it got to be so difficult to have conversations with her about being so pro-life and very close minded about about choice that I told her, I was like, I just I just want to let you know that for my own body, I would always choose life. That's just my 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 choice. But I would never dictate to somebody else, and I don't feel that anybody has a right to, let alone government, to tell a woman or a man what they can do with their bodies. And so from that aspect, um, oh boy, the insults, the berating, the, the, I was almost disowned at that, at that point. It was such a severe issue um, that, that was a dividing line, and it continues to be with those that are so you know, affirmed and entrenched in what it means to potentially end what they would believe is a life inside, you know, That's a the part that really just baffles me, this, yeah. this conviction that it needs to be forced on others. Because not every faith takes that point of view, but this in the, in the Christian faith, among the pro-life, factions, it seems to be mm-hmm. as important as the personal choice itself. Yeah, a crusade, yeah. literally a crusade to tell other people what to do and in their in their vision save a life, but then not really have any interest in what happens to that life or where that life ends up or what happens to the life of the mother, apparently, exactly. you know, or what yeah, happens exactly. to anyone who's who's also alive. Yeah, I think that there is just because I've I've lived and breathed it, I believe that there is this indoctrination that um you know, like life is life and so let let it live and you know, irregardless of what it may do to the family afterwards or the choice or by which it made. I mean, that's almost like it's not it's it's a non-question. It it's almost like the, you know, there's not even an openness to thinking about that part of the conversation. There's so much closed-mindedness in thinking that 
all we think about is that once a, once a life is germinated, once it is there, and there is that debate about like at what point is life. But you know, to to people like um, my mom, God bless her, and I and I love her, and she's still she's still with me. Um, to to people who are of that belief, it's very difficult when you start talking about people's beliefs and yeah. and and shouting matches and and the those kinds of um, you know I'll call them algorithms because that's what it is. It's like because you're you're so polarized and you just dig in even further into your convictions, it is creating this separation that's yeah. even a bigger rift than it ever probably was before. And so, yeah, I think that what happens is, you know, with the cycles of times and, you know, the pendulum swings, you know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction for every Obama, we're going to get a Trump, then we're going to get a Biden, you know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's just swing back and forth. And truly the, the idea of diplomacy and just you know, having civil discussions has really gone out the window in many respects. It also seems that there's that this parallel fear of science, like I, I like I don't know where your 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 mom and your family, let's say, shook out on science. Like, was mm-hmm. medicine and science did it have a place? It's really amusing, and I have seen, I mean, in, in my own life, and I can't really t- speak about megatrends, but I would say that I think that there is definitely a shift towards um, embracing science, and, and that's why we are having this whole, you know, exodus out of, no, no pun intended, but an exodus out <laughs> of religious groups, because yeah. um, because it just, you know, it, people are looking for something that they can really sink their teeth in and really understand and make sense of life, and, yeah. and religious religion wasn't doing it for them. And so then we come to science and back, you know, when I was taught, it was that evolution was evil. It was a lie <laughs> that creation and like, you know, there, there, there was that debate back then. It really is, isn't a debate anymore as much as, as it was back then anyway. I mean, if it is, then it's like you, you barely hear about it. But, you know, the idea that it's been proven over time that these things are happening and um, and unfortunately, with a lot of science, there's just been so much gaslighting lately yeah. that p- and fake news that it, because of political gain and aspects of, you know, where the money is going. Um, so there's a lot of um, mistruths that the public is being fed, as we all know. And so it's very hard for people to know what is truth and what is what's fact and what's fiction, what's real science and what is not. Um, and so it really takes a whole lot of effort and education, unfortunately, to find truth in 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 all of the news and all of the science because a lot of it is so biased or or subjective or has a little bit of an, an angle to it to try to benefit a specific party or a specific entity um and so yeah that that that's become pretty fascinating but i will say you know just thinking about medicine and 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 science myself i mean i also um Remember when when I was growing up, my dad, God bless him, um, suffered from major clinical depression most of his life. I mean, he he was you know a businessman. He was one that unfortunately was screwed over by his brothers for like you know swindled for all his money from his own family, and it, it spiraled him into like these this deep deep dark depression for many many years. We lived with this, and it was not easy because um, my mom would tell him. Uh, you know, you don't need prescriptions. We think that that's just, that's not what we do in this family. You are not a man if you feel that you need to depend on pharmaceuticals for that. Like, it, like emasculated him. And so he lived with this depression and also feeling like stripped of his, of, of his masculinity because he couldn't cope very well. And then finally, it was only until like years and like decades went by. And then finally he, um, you know, decided on his own that he was going to go get some, some medicine to help him. And he was a brand new man. He was yeah. like, so like he found his joy. And my, and afterwards my mom was like, gosh, why was I, you know, nagging him all these years about that. And so I think that she recognized that that was just something that, that, you know, her belief was impacting very negatively on something that was like, you know, if you have a headache, take an aspirin. Yeah, it was fixable. It It wasn't uh, earth shattering. And that became my thing too, is like when I went through my clinical depression, you know, uh, 
divorced twice with a lot of the stuff that has happened in my life, it was never a question. I mean, I questioned myself, like I didn't know if I really wanted to go there because I felt that it was a little bit like shameful to do that too. But it was both of my parents that said to me, there's nothing wrong with it do it like if you need to do it like you know go to go see a doctor go see a therapist get the help that you think that you need because it's not worth being miserable yeah telling telling a child also no all the time can't possibly mm-hmm. produce a productive result no is supposed to be a boundary that protects children and lets them know that they're loved and lets them know that somebody cares about what happens to them and that there's a stable kind of fence around them that they will then want to maybe build around their own family but it's not impervious to everything and it's not absolute and it's when that 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 fence becomes absolute that there's no room for freedom of choice at all Mm -hmm. and simple things like taking aspirin you know everything everything with the funny thing about rocket science is that nothing else is rocket science you know, you know, they say it's not rocket science. Well, nothing is except for rocket science. And if you're not doing rocket science, then just use your com- use logic. If there is yeah. a God, God gave us a sense of reason, a sense of humor. And that's where the truth tastes funny thing comes from, which is that we have to mm-hmm. acknowledge that there is a truth. Yes, it's very yeah. hard to get to these days. Yeah, it's really easy to obscure and obfuscate um, and to mislead and confuse but it's there it is there and many times we will not like the taste of it many times we will not like the truth and so in some weird way if I'm being generous and I also come from a from a, a religious background Jewish faith and but very you know orthodox background and uh, the the generous interpretation would be that to spare us some ugliness and to spare us some difficult experiences and realities, religion often shields us from it, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. then in the end, is it really serving us to hide ourselves from the from the truth, or should we just grow up and start to be responsible for our lives? Yeah, yeah. I think that there's a lot to be said about the the notion that, you know, I think a lot of religion had been based on that it like it's saintly to suffer. Like yeah. there, there's this notion of like if if we say no or if you constrict yourself and if you have discipline and if you're rigid and you live this, you know, very straight and narrow path and then you are on your path of righteousness. And what we're realizing is that that unto itself creates such resistance and such mental anguish in, in, in humanity because we're meant, truly, I believe we're meant to thrive. We're meant to be free and liberated. And so by the saying no just for the sake of no, you know, just because I said so kind of mm-hmm. a thing, to, it, it, it's, it becomes unacceptable. It becomes that, you know, there's going to, where there's a will, there's a way, then kids are going to get rebellious. Kids are going to figure it out. They're going to, you know, they're going to do it on their own. Or or if not, then, you know, boy, they're going to probably end up on the therapist's couch for quite, quite yeah. some years. And so, yeah, and I think that that's where people are fleeing away from religion. They're fleeing away from the idea of, you know what, what can I do to alleviate the suffering? And they just haven't found their way out to thriving in and manifesting who they truly really are inside and so Uh, yeah that's one of the lessons i learned i i think it adds a lot of layers of self-discovery to our process of becoming adults or maturing it adds all of this stuff we now have to dig through so i think we were we left off in high school still right after high school, went to college. Um, I ended up getting married um, at 24, and uh, went to got, get my um, MBA at Georgetown. And uh, because I, I just felt like you know, there, I, I I felt um, like I needed more intellectual stimulation. I needed to like be more fulfilled in my life. And so then um, after that, I I uh, you know got a job. I started in in beauty big business beauty in Manhattan 
And uh, my husband at the time was a farm boy, and he just was not very happy with living in New York at all. And so we definitely had this air, this situation where I felt like I was just like in my in my element, and and he. Where was, was he was from? Troutville, Virginia. Okay. Well, Troutville yeah, says but, it all. I haven't been to yeah. Troutville, but I get it. Yeah, you get it. Yeah, you get it. Um, so four years, um, and so at 28, I, I felt like a damaged bag of goods. I tell you, it was like I, I probably felt older at 28 than I feel now <laughs> because it was just like, again, I felt like, oh, my God, I failed. I, you know, I, I really felt like I, I needed to keep this marriage together just, you know, and I would do everything. I'd quit my job. I'd do everything. And then it was my, it was my dad who said to me, you can't stay in this marriage you're going to be miserable if you do. You have to be you. And that, to me, was so heartening. And it just made it... I felt like oh, this massive weight that was lifted off my shoulders just to have my parents' consent and for them to say to me, all we care about is you and your happiness. That is all that matters. And it was the start of me you know, really feeling like, okay, now I think I'm on this place where I can start discovering more of what really makes me me. Um, which again, you know, still there's like this whole continued journey on, you know, screwing up and. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the so the screw ups didn't too. completely come to an end at that oh, point. Oh no, and they never will. They will okay. always be. You know, that's that's part of life, and that's right. why we continue to laugh and find humor in it. But it may have been a pivotal moment of validation for you because all of these things were pursuits of validation and here you got this at this moment at this very vulnerable moment at a very difficult crossroads you got unconditional love which is the which is the the only thing i think that a parent can really provide any Mm -hmm. child of of Mm -hmm. of real value real intrinsic value uh you can provide material comfort you can provide support in many ways but unconditional love is is the thing that it's the we're thing meant and it's to, rare you know and and, and, and isn't that surprising how rare how rare it is it, it's not surprising because we live in a conditional world i feel like a lot of times you will hear people say like if you don't do this then or you know, uh, you yeah. know, I'll you know, I you, you'll make me happy if, or I'll only be happy if. There's always that if, and there's I'll that condition. I'll be disappointed. I'll be disappointed. I will be so disappointed if you if. Yeah. I will never speak to you again if you know. There's always <laughs> like, and and so there there's all sorts of signals and symptoms that we don't really love, you know, unconditionally. That everything is built upon. Well, if you make me happier, if you don't piss me off, or if you you know toe the line, then. You know, then you will deserve, or, or you will be granted my affection, and I will show you even more affection, or or so whatnot. Now, and that's not now in love. the human beauty movement, I got it. I got it right this this time. <laughs> but now it's all coming into focus. So when yeah. human beauty movement became something you wanted to do, what was mm-hmm. the impetus behind that? Yeah, you know, I I started that in 2019 and and that was even after I'm going to I'm going to jump back and then get yes, back into please. the beauty movement because um after after, you know, living in New York for a while, burning the candle at both ends, you know, having just gone through a divorce um and finding online dating um and then, you know, just living life fast and furiously, I ended up burning myself out really really badly and decided that I needed to make a life change. Um, I would also get seasonal affect disorder um, living oh, in yes. Manhattan. It was really, really severe. I'd actually go to the tanning bed almost every day just to try to get some UV light. <laughs> so, yeah. It was terrible. Um, and so I ended up saying to myself, oh, I'm going to move either to Miami or, or, or California, someplace where it's sunny and I can you know, actually see the sun more often. And so I ended up... Um, Right around um, 2000, uh, 2001, moving to Los Angeles and took a job out here. And I was like, oh, if I you know, don't like it, I can always move back. And here I still am 22 years later. Um, but it was right before 9-11. And I couldn't believe it. I remember um, seeing the news of when the towers fell. I was like, I was just there. Like, I, I couldn't, yeah. you know, that, that whole thing was just um just a travesty and also very earth-shattering life life shaking for for everybody around the world um but you know living here 
I ended up um, continuing my, my career in the beauty industry, got married a second time, and uh, ended up um, having a baby boy. And what was fascinating was I never really wanted to get married again. I was very reluctant. I was like, oh, you know, I just, I thought that I would just be happy living in sin for the rest of my life. Um, but then, well, you know, I got pregnant and I was like, oh gosh, I feel like, you know, I'm obligated to get married again because I want to raise a child in, in a family. And so there again was my own, you know, kind of past life kind of coming through again, making right. another loop. Um, and so um, when my son was about two years old, you know, he's hitting all milestones, super smart, talky, you know, starting to doing all the, all the things two years old is supposed to do. Um, he suddenly, um, started to show signs of spasticity and weakness. He stopped wanting to, to talk, to eat, to crawl, like all of these things. And, um, long story short, he ended up, um, falling into a coma for about three months. Um, almost, died several times at the hospital. Luckily, we were able to get him into a hospital. Um, luckily, we live in a place where there are amazing hospitals around us. Um, but uh, we didn't know what the heck was, was going on. Um, and it wasn't until um, many, many months that, you know, after various tests and all of these things, intubation, like, um, we discovered that he had a very rare um, genetic disorder, which is called a mitochondrial disease. And what that is, is a global energy deficiency. It's like every cell in your body doesn't work properly to make the energy that it needs to sustain normal life. And so when you're around two years old and you're going through growth spurts and you're exposed to people and, you know, there's germs and all of this stuff, the body can't take a certain amount of stress. Once it does, it ends up just shutting down. And so that's what happened to my son. And uh, what was crazy was that um, I think that a lot of the doctors there were like they threw up their hands because nothing really was known about this particular disease. Uh, they just knew that it was very rare, that the prognosis was bleak, that he probably wouldn't live to C3, and that we needed to just figure out what we wanted to do because, um, you know, luckily in Los Angeles, um, they can't kick us out of a hospital. We can stay as long as we want to. And as long as I guess insurance is, is there, but, um, they were telling us that like, if we lived in a, you know, a different country, then they would be like, you know, this is the prognosis and we unfortunately need to exit you because these beds are, you know, we need to reserve these beds for other people. And I was thinking to myself, yeah. thank God, thank God I live in a place, you know, and it, it started to really build up this gratitude of, the fact that, you know, we do have exceptional health care. We have exceptional doctors. You know, there's not much known, but there's still so much to go. And and then it, it came down to a choice. You know, what do you do when faced as a, as a parent in that situation? Do you pull the plug or do you hold out for hope? And so the the fascinating thing and the good thing is that my then husband and I were very aligned and we said we're holding out for hope. We believe that there's going to be something that we can figure out, and, and we believe this boy, to us again, right? So that, like, we, we believe that for us, he deserves to live, and we will do whatever it takes. We will take out, you know, outstanding, extra, extraordinary measures in order to try to you know, give this boy the life that, that he wants to, to right. have. And, um, and then lo and behold, after about a month of that, he started waking up. And it was a total surprise to everybody. Um, after four months, he was uh, he received a trach, and we were we went home with our son. And it was like coming back with a newborn. We were like, I have no idea what to do with this child. He's so fragile, and we had to learn how to be special needs parents. Um, and you know, over the course of years, um, and in caring for this boy, he's now sixteen, by the way. Oh, wow. <laughs> so he's a survivor. He's taught me so many more lessons, and he has been pretty much the mirror that I needed to discover the true essence of what spirit and what love and what unconditional love and what real beauty is about. And I thank God. I think that a lot of there there was a lot of oh woe is me and why me and like sure. all of these you know terrible things that a lot of a lot of people think when when you have when you go through something as terribly dramatic as that. 
And and yeah, they, I mean, it's it's only human to, to grieve and to, to say, oh my gosh, you know, I should be having a boy that, look, you know, that's in, in school now, or I should, you know, like my son should be playing with these things, or there there, there was a whole lot of that which drove me to uh, PTSD, frankly, because when we brought him home, and then it's like the adrenaline rush starts to like subside. Then you then you start thinking in your head, like, "Oh my gosh, like, what am I going to do with with all of this?" And what and kind I of actually, Jen? What kind of care yeah. did he require when, once you brought him home? Like, what was that? What were you? What were you yeah. dealing with in that sense? Yeah, I mean, at the time, I had to quit my job. There was no way that I could, you know, ha, ha, you know, leave the care up to somebody else at that time. And so, but we were fortunate. And again, I, I, I feel so blessed with, you know, insurance and the state of California, God bless, um, the, the amount of coverage and care that there are for children who are, who are you know, in this kind of situation that um, we were able to hire licensed vocational nurses to come and help us. And so even to this day and all during this time, we have a rotation of three amazing nurses that work for us. Two of them are are full-time and one of them is part-time, two during the week and one on the weekend. Um, And then then the parent, I, I do the overnight shift. And so there's no sleep. Yeah. <laughs> There's, there is a lack of sleep. So, so what does that look like? It's, um, he, he is nonverbal. He's non-mobile. He is ventilator dependent. He has a tracheostomy that's fed through a circuit to a ventilator with extra oxygen that gets piped in to help support him. He is also G-tube fed, so he doesn't eat by mouth. He, um, he actually has formula that goes in and nutri- other nutrition that we feed him through a tube that goes into his belly. And um, continence care, bathing, um, dressing, like everything is, is he's fully dependent upon, for, for physical needs um, with the, the, the caretakers and the loved ones around him. He yeah. also gets homeschooled. Um, and so that's also something that we're, we've been challenged with, especially during COVID, uh, because it used to be in person, we would have a teacher come to the house, but now everything's on Zoom and it's very different. <laughs> so, uh, so how, did you, how did you manage that? Yeah, I I will say like you know with the with the earlier years, um, you know his his condition would ebb and flow, and so there there was a part where we thought that he would be able to get off his tracheostomy. He started walking again. He started going back to school again, and things were looking all so rosy. But then he would have another crash because the stress on his body through growing and through all that he was exposed to and whatnot. You know he would unfortunately have these um, stroke like symptoms where, you know, eventually it just took out a lot of his capacity and his um, neuromuscular system was completely involved. And so between, you know, damage in, in the brain and the, and the motor functions, we, we do recognize that he is fully cognizant. He can understand and he, he can, you know, fully intake everything. He just can't, he's blocked from being able to express and so it on Zoom, it's so it's so difficult because you know at least in person you can see a wiggle, you can see like the, with, for a yeah. teacher who's there and having this engagement when you're on a screen and trying to teach and you're and you can't see a reaction or you don't have anything. I, I almost think that it's it's almost funny that our teachers are getting you know schooled together, going all you know back through <laughs> through grade school yeah. and, and 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 all of that again because they're helping him so much with his lesson plan and the homework and whatnot. And so, yeah, it really is like, uh, you know, when, when you're a special needs child and you're on an IEP, what we call the IEP, then, you know, everything is very much tailored to what that ch- we believe that the child is learning, what, can, what he can learn, and whatever responses um, we believe are showing us that he has passed or that he is, is digesting the information. So, yeah, yeah it, it is challenging. And the other thing is that he only gets five, like, unfortunately, because he of the way that things are with, with school these days, he only gets five hours of school a week, which um, is also, you know, just really, really difficult as a parent to yeah. to digest. And so, you know, we're always looking for additional stimulation and ways to, to show him, you know, other kinds of education outside his classroom sessions. So sure. he's 16 years old now. So yeah. what was going on over the, let's say, over that decade, that core decade? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, amazing um, ups and downs and, and, and tops and turns. And, you know, um, one thing, like when he first came out of the hospital and, um, you know, we were just getting him home and figuring things out, my husband at the time had a, a child, a daughter who was 12 years old with from his previous marriage. And so, you know, there was making sure that she felt loved and, and attended to and, and, you know, was, was being cared for because once your attention turns to the special needs child, the other child or the other children in the family are typically known as glass children, like nobody sees them. Or they're, they're essentially meant to be just like, okay, don't upset anybody. You know your role. You have to be a good girl. You know, and, and, and so that unfortunately becomes an emotional burden on the other child that is very difficult to contend with when you're a parent. And, and so we, we had to like come to grips with that. Um, simultaneously, her mother, unfortunately, was going through her own battles and um, uh, became addicted and unfortunately took her own life. Oh. And so we were going through that trauma with poor, you know, his poor sister at the same time in our family. Um, luckily, we you know, landed on some amazing nurses that really started to become family. They were at our house every day and they were really so supportive and so understanding and so, and so loved my son so much like, you know, almost as if they were, they were my children that, um, I felt after a period of time and after seeking help for PTSD and feeling comfortable enough, I was able to start working again. And so I went back into the beauty business and then you realize, like, once you start working after going through all this trauma, boy, how your priorities shift. Yeah. No longer is launching the next shade of lipstick very important. <laughs> no longer are office politics something that you really feel that you can, you can handle. And then when you start, um, you know, I, I remember there were many, there were many commutes and commuting in L.A. is no joke. I mean, I'd have an hour long commute there and back going back to and forth to different offices that I was working at. And I would just be sitting there sobbing on the freeway because <laughs> I was so exhausted, you know, from like not getting enough sleep the night before. My son would would have to go back and forth to the ER emergently because he would lose oxygen and not be able to breathe and like all sorts of stuff where I'd have to leave and then go home. And, and so just juggling your professional career and also, you know, all of the, the, the very serious issues that are ha- happening at home are, you know, it's, de- it's definitely a challenge. And then, oh, by the way, um, my husband was cheating on me too <laughs> for 10 oh. years. He was also having these extra marital affairs. And so, um, you know, it, it became like, I, and that, this was the point where I was just like, God, <laughs> you know, what more do I, you know, what, what did I do to deserve this? And I, and I really was just like very, you know, just like I was going through the whole, what was me? Like, oh my God, what else can happen? Like, what else can happen? And I think a lot of people feel like it's like when it rains, it just massively pours on you, boy. Were you, were you still connected to Christianity or like where, where was that? Where was all of that background and all of that not in your life much. at that at that time? Yeah, yeah, boy, not as much, not as much. I, I feel like there there was a connection to there started to be a connection more to um, the idea of like different kinds of religions or sp- spirit, and then I started to kind of open up more to spirituality and less to the the dogma of say the Catholic church every once in a while. I mean, I would go to, to church for Christ, for Christmas or for Easter, but I really wasn't like a practicing Christian at that time. I would say my own grace. I would say my own prayers and things like that. And I would have my own relationship with what I believed was God, but um, it definitely wasn't something that was structured as it were. Yeah. But uh, yeah, at that point, I think that, um, you know, I almost started to tap out. You know, it was almost to the point where I was just like, I just don't know why I'm even, you know, why I'm here, what I'm supposed to be doing. And so you start questioning everything in your life about, you know, what is, you know, what you're doing, if you're doing it right. Are you a bad wife? Are you a bad parent? Are you a bad, you know, it's just like, are you bad at your career? Because, you know, I started getting fired from a whole lot of companies because it's just like, you know, I I was not a team, you know, it's not that I wasn't a team player, but I I started to not put up with the BS. Yeah, well, you didn't give a shit about the, about the, the petty stuff, you know, Yeah, and you couldn't come back. A lot of people, I think, have that now with COVID on their own level. They come back yeah. from a pandemic, from being quarantined, and either the experience is 
usually it almost drove you crazy and it almost was some kind of revelation. But it, yeah. somewhere in between, losing your mind and feeling hopeless and despondent and actually being liberated in some way. So people are totally confused right now. They don't want to take exactly. the same shit at work, but they also don't yeah. know what the hell's going on in the world and they don't know how to deal with it. And then they yeah, want to, yeah. you know, so, so you were getting, you were not fitting in in that, in that I was slot. finding myself lacking, you know, lacking the, um, you know, the, the corporate um, facade that was needed mm-hmm. in order to be able to thrive in some of the environments. Once you go through ur- real urgency and real crises, like your your whole level of acuity shifts. I just found myself on a, a different plane. And then I got to the point where I was just seeing a lot of shittiness happen at, yeah. you know, a lot of places where I was. And to the point where it's like, you know, so bottom line driven. And so people are working themselves like crazy to death. Um, the cut, corners are, are being cut. Quality is being cut. They're like there's just really bad, like good people making bad decisions. Yeah. And so it got to the point where, um, you know, I had um, filed for divorce and I was like on my own. And um, meanwhile, you know, I was feeling like, you know, my son was really such a, a vital and important aspect of my life. Um, I started doing a, f- a few d- different things that were I, I found fulfilling to me. One of them was we started to write this book series based upon my son in, in a very positive way called The Adventures of Super Captain Brave Man. And this is a book series which essentially has a protagonist, which is a boy in a wheelchair, and it helps to teach kids at an early age about disability and kindness towards people that are not like them. And uh, and so we, you know, launched that on his 10th birthday. And that's really been something wonderful where there's like this creative outlet and there's this way because we were finding that, you know, kids would come up to my son or they'd look at him and they would be frightened because they would see tubes and they would see him in a wheelchair and, and they would say to their parents, like, what's wrong with that boy? And the parents would not know what to say. They would be like, don't, don't, don't say anything. And they felt like it was almost like embarrassing, like they didn't want to say the wrong thing or they didn't want to cause yeah. like tension. And so we were like what a great learning experience or an education moment it could be to you know have this opportunity to say you know hey this is my son this is what 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 the wheelchair is this is what a ventilator is it's okay you can you can you can come up to him and say hi and so it was really about trying to normalize the fact that there are so many wonderful kids that have special needs or whether it be autism, Downs, CP, you know, just all sorts of different things that we thought we could, you know, help to inform kids and, and have bonding moments where parents read bedtime stories to their kids and share with them these, these lessons. And so that's been, that's been something that I found, have found very rewarding and, and a, a positive thing. And then starting the human beauty movement was really my way of turning the beauty industry inside out and really saying, you know what, the superficial, this is not what beauty is about. You know, in fact, the way that we're selling beauty, which is you have a zit, you have a wrinkle, you're fat, like it, you need to change. We want, want to get you to your, to a, a better place so that you're more acceptable. I mean, that yeah. was pretty much the program that we were running for so many years. And now it's like, uh-uh, that's not, that's not beauty. That's not real beauty. Real beauty starts from inside. It starts from you knowing who you are. It's that journey and that self-discovery that I went through on like finding yourself, understanding who you truly are, understanding like what you're all about and what your soul desires, and then being able to manifest that however the fuck you want. And that's what the human beauty movement is all about. It's like, can we touch individual lives, you know, and, and just let them know, number one, that they, they are love, they are light, they deserve love, they, they, they are, but they don't need other people to tell them that. It's nice when we do, because a lot of people do thrive on words of validation. But aside from that, really dig down and understand why you're doing the things that you're doing. Like, are you doing it to please other people, to, to, to please your parents, to like speak to a form of religion that you believe in or, you know, things like that. And really just like dissecting it down and creating this community where we can have these discussions and these workshops and talk about it and, and, you know, inform and let people journal and, and meditate and really find that inner, 
beauty that that they have in there that might just be buried, might just be shrouded by external forces. One of the one of the things that I think is is missing in the DEI equation where people are talking about inclusion is that they're still breaking it down into groups, you know. Yeah. We're including this oh, group, we're including that group. But what they're failing to to do is include every individual and say, well, it doesn't it doesn't matter what color they are or what culture they come from or what their their various ability is or what their what their pronouns are. It's it's so far beyond that. The real inclusion comes when they say Oh, I accept you as you, whatever mm-hmm. you are. These mm-hmm. various, the fact that you can check off 15 boxes doesn't include a person. It, it helps yeah. with rights. It helps with treatment, fairness, whatever. But it's, it, to me, it's missing the, the big point, which is that no two people are alike. That's what makes us human beings. That's what we yeah. have that we can do. We can express our individuality, each of us. So that that seems to me to be that's why I like the the human beauty movement to me just just simple as that is, it really conveys that there's a human element to all of this that is not mm-hmm. about ideals. It's not yeah. about an ideal. Yeah, and the reason why I called it the human beauty movement is because beauty to me is not reserved to women. Um, and to me, it's like if if you are human, then uh, you know, no, no matter what gender you are, what race, what age, what ability, what you know, who you love, and like that stuff doesn't matter so much as you mattering. And so, like I I often tell people, like I, I know to your point about inclusion, then there's all these women's groups that are like women's rights and and all of that. And I and I get that, and I see where it comes from. But to me, that isn't inclusive. That's actually fighting against masculinity. And to me, I don't want to fight anymore. I feel like fighting is not as beneficial or as productive as cheering for something. And so I want to cheer for humanity. I want to work for us all coming together. I want to work for inclusivity. I don't want to fight against misogyny or fight against the, you know, masculine paradigm. I I think that we can, you know, I'd rather be like, you know, the river that that flows and let's like yeah. flow into something new and inclusive and beautiful that includes all of humanity. I'm trying to stimulate and encourage people to continue like living for the now and for the future rather than um, like being shackled to the past because that doesn't define them any longer. Like every day is a fresh start. That's a great point because we if we allow because anger is fine it's 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 you know we, we don't want to you know we're tr- we're taught not to make people angry and not to be angry it isn't so much about that anger is a release it's mm-hmm. understandable why people would be angry and people who've been uh treated like shit for generations and had their had their culture appropriated and their their land stolen out from under them and you know just treated like second-class citizens and now you know half the population treated again as second classes. It's of course anger is is a natural response. So we don't deny anybody their their anger. But if they're allowed to be angry and you're allowed to be angry about something, then it can pass. Then it can grow into something else. Mm-hmm. So your point yeah. about not holding on to the to the the sins of the past and the you know the failings of the past and all of that is. Yeah. A healthy way to look at that process because mm-hmm. you're talking about these things and you're not getting overly emotional about a lot of them, but you've experienced the emotions. You've yeah. processed yeah. them. That's probably why you could, if you hadn't confronted any of this, yeah, it would be hard to talk about it. Exactly. I, and, and you're exactly right, because there does need to like you need to release that energy. You need to release that that anger, the frustration, all of that. You know, it, that's part of the cycle of healing. It's like, OK, let it go, but clear it. If you hold on to it, that's not healing. That's just like reopening up the wound every single time. And so if you find that you can be angry and then resolve it and then find ways that help you to truly 
absorb what's happened and realize that the actual event itself is neutral, your reaction to it is what makes the difference. Yeah. And so we, you know, we talk to a lot of people about like, okay, there's power in the pause. It's like something happens. How are you going to process it? And it's your choice. You can you can choose to to see it as something as an opportunity, or you can choose to see it as something that's a detriment that's going to hold you back. And 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 anything that happens in life can be seen in both ways. Sure. And most of the Stoics, you know, Marcus Aurelius, all of the all of those fellows, and and you know the magnificent people who have been able to withstand all sorts of you know calamities and have gotten through it with you know and 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 been stronger on the other side have realized that you know people can't take their you know their own choices to be happy like that yeah. is truly your choice like you can feel sad in the moment you can feel angry in the moment but you know as long as you feel that you're moving in a in a place of being true to yourself and true to your own joy then you'll be working in the right direction absolutely i have it's funny, I, I don't always do this, but we have a, we had a list of things to talk about, and I'm looking at the list, and I want to make sure that we, that we covered all of it. You've been very generous <laughs> with your time, but I, but I feel like, okay, I don't want to like look back at this list and be like, oh, we didn't talk about this. So we yeah. talked about adoption and modern families and diversity. We talked about beauty and beauty standards. Wow, we did really well. My only thing when we were going into this was, wow, there's so much to talk about. I hope we don't end up talking about just one thing. And then dating over 50, oh boy. 100 bad <laughs> dates. Did you really have 100 bad dates? I had 100 bad, probably more at this point, to be honest with you. Uh, yeah. And I think you know, part of it started with like, you know, learning about online dating and then not knowing that you can say no. Like, you know, when you're... <laughs> you didn't know that you could, you could, like, you could swipe right swipe or left. left. You only knew you could swipe one direction. Was after the swiping, and this was before, I think it was before Bumble. Um, and yeah. Like if I was on like some of the other ones and somebody would hit me up, I would think that it was rude if I didn't get back to them. <laughs> so oh. I just... My one funny, well, I've got several funny stories, but one that does stick out was I remember I I went on this date and um, went over to meet this individual at his apartment. When I went into the apartment, every surface that you could imagine was covered in cannabis flower. It was just everywhere. And the whole place just reeked of of pot. Like, and I was just like, oh, you know, and at that time, I don't even know if I was 420 friendly, but I was like, um, okay. I didn't even know where to sit. It was like all over the couch. And he's just like, well, you know, I didn't really, you know, think of what we would do. So maybe we'll just go out to, to eat. And I was like, oh, okay. So takes me to his car, which was like this old beat up jalopy. I get in and immediately regretted it because in order to start his car, he had to blow through a tube. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he apparently had a D. UI of some sort and needed to prove that every time that he was he driving, was the one guy who got a who got a DUI from being too high to drive. People people drive like they get DUIs from 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 alcohol and and, and oh drugs. Oh my god! But yeah, and and I, I was thinking he my, was he was he was too high to drive. He got I, into that. Yeah, I, I, I think it was probably I think he he actually had gotten um, the DUI from alcohol and oh, he, okay. because he was smoking when we when we first got there and I, I, I immediately regretted even getting in the car with him. But right. the car started and I was thinking to myself, how am I going to escape? Like it, there, and so he brings me to this taqueria, which was if you know anything about like Los Angeles and yeah, like, I lived some in of Los Angeles for almost twenty years. I, oh yeah. boy, yeah this this was not a this was not a pleasant first date experience, and so. I, I faked a phone call. I, I faked having to like take an emergency call and I was like, oh my gosh, my, my son's nurse, is, he needs me yeah. right now. I, I have to get home. And so I totally made up a story to get out of there as fast as I could. But uh, yeah, it, never a dull moment. I think that there are, I just find a lot of guys don't have their shit together. You know, they no. really don't. Really? Is that true? <laughs> Guys I, don't have their shit together. Out of a hundred that well, I've, <laughs> or so that I've, there might have been like I could probably count them on my hand the ones that yeah. I would say, okay, you've got your shit together. But then there was, you know, I've just resigned myself to say, like, you know, I really like my independence right now, and there, I've got yeah. a full, full life, and so whatever happens, happens. But yeah. <laughs> but but that that box was not left unchecked. 
It's not like you're going to go through your life wondering what would have happened had you embraced online dating and been oh a little God. more uh, and been a little more loose in your standards. You know, now you yeah. know. Now you now you yeah. don't have to worry that you missed out on you know a bunch of wonderful amazing I certainly did not I certainly did not and every time that I'm tempted to go back on like I actually did you know I was like oh I'll just see if anything has changed and I did that in September and I was like nope everything is still the same it's still the same as soon as you see cannabis leaves on a coffee table you're like no nothing's changed nothing's changed (laughs) they probably have a a like a pronoun or descriptor for breathalyzer in car like it's like there's so many there's a category for everything so if you have if you have bic if it says bic next to their profile that means breathalyzer in car you have to be a little more careful well jen jen norman it has been such a pleasure speaking with you and um and i thank you for coming on and for your time and for just sharing your perspective and your story and your positivity because that is exactly what people need that is what we need these days it's there isn't a way to ignore what we're going through but there's Mm -hmm. a way to kind of plow through it and motor through Mm -hmm. it with a good attitude so um thank you so much for coming on hirsch it was a pleasure thanks so much for having me on you have a great one thanks so much for tuning into truth tastes funny If you enjoyed the experience, please leave a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends.